Amen. All right, so we left off in 1 Timothy 1. Uh, I think the last verse we read was 17. So we're going to dig into verses 18 and 20. Uh, let me see if I can look back real quick and just give you guys a quick overview. Where are we at? So we talked about Paul's gratitude for the grace of the gospel in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. Uh, we also talked about uh, Timothy's charge to confront the false teachings in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11. And then we also spoke about, um, you know, just how Paul greets the church, the apostle of Christ Jesus, you know, things like that before he went into the main part of the letter. So right now we're going to go to verse 18 and 20. We're going to read it. And then we'll start asking some questions and see if we can learn and grow together. So pull it up. First Timothy 18 to 20. It says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul reminds Timothy of the prophecies that were previously made about him, you know, which probably refers to Timothy's calling and his equipping for his ministry at the church, right? Um, comparing that to, let's go to 1 Timothy 4.14 real quick. 1 Timothy 4.14. It says, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So just thinking about these, the prophecies that were made over Timothy's life, um, Again, we don't know exactly what the prophecies are. The scriptures don't really speak to them. So we're just going to kind of speculate here. But I want you guys to tell me, you know, how might these prophecies that were spoken over Timothy's life at some point help him to fulfill the charge that he now has? Are, are you referring to uh, in 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 uh, in four fourteen uh, verse uh, one eighteen? The charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies and what we read before, where he was to face the false teachers, oh, okay. you know, stand for the truth. Uh, that's why it gets get a little bit difficult, huh? Because we pause yeah. and then we forget like where we were at. So yeah, just. That was the prophecy that was previously made about him. We don't really know what it is, but just think how might you, how might that have um, like encouraged him to fulfill his charge? Yeah, I, I think that you're right. We don't, we don't have that prophetic utterance. We don't have that prophecy. Now we can rest assured that it was, you know, um, thus says the Lord type of um, uh prophecy and uh but we just don't know and that and i think that's part of the uh it's kind of like 
we don't have all the prayers of the saints, right? We just have, we have some prayers, but not all. And so, um, but I think that whatever was spoken, one, he believed it, <laughs> you know, you know, cause a lot of times when, um, you know, I know this gets, this goes into other grounds in regards to um, how much we pay attention to certain things and how much we don't, we have to weigh out what people speak. And I understand that without going into all that, we sometimes we were very critical. We're hypercritical about, about um, somebody speaking into our lives. Um, and we could be too hypercritical at times. Um, although there's groups that are not critical at all. And, and, and so um, I can speak for our group because I know you guys. I think that our group would be more hypercritical. Um, and, uh, it, but another group would probably be not as critical. But if, if I, I think that this just goes in line with God's will, like if, if somebody is saying something that is, um, that is according to scripture, that's not, um, you know, for example, if God wants that God can use each and every one of you, I can rest assured that that's, I mean, yeah, we can back that up with scripture and so forth. The problem is that we just don't believe these things. We, 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 I, I think that other people believe in us more than what we believe in ourselves at times. And I think that Timothy actually believed it and said, you know what? Cause he knew the calling was confirmed within, right? The greatest witness is the inner witness. And the Holy Spirit was like prompting him and what they said just connected. And it was like, um, and you know, he was off. So I think the fact that he believed that, that prophetic utterance and who it came from and what they spoke, you know, right? So he believed it, who said it and what they were saying was online. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Anybody else want to add? How do you guys think that might have just encouraged him? Okay. I think you hit it right on the nail, bro. Got everybody quiet now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just think it would be encouraging, you know, if, if someone spoke over my life and I seen it coming to be, you know, little by little as I'm taking my steps of faith and just following the Lord, you know, for, for Paul to remind me, hey, you know, we prophesied over you these things, like now they're coming about, like be encouraged. You know, I would be encouraged. I'd be like, Oh yeah, God got my back, man. What am I doing? You know, like, why am I maybe scared to stand up to these false teachers or why am I, you know, not pushing forward into this even more? Like, you know, God's got me. This, this was already spoken about me kind of deal. So, and yeah, I think we would definitely be a little more critical, but I would definitely receive it and hope that it comes to pass. Cause most of the time, like you said, you know, other people see, things in us at times that we don't see in ourselves, you know, and who knows if God said it, though, it will come to pass. That's, that's 100%. Like you can count on it. If it didn't, then it obviously wasn't from God. All right, let's keep going. Paul handed over his opponents, Hymenius and Alexander to Satan in verse 20. He says, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. First uh, Corinthians 5, 5 also describes this kind of final step of church discipline um, in similar terms. Let's read it real quick. First Corinthians 5, 5. It says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So we can see here that the church discipline is not 
meant to be vindictive or like mean spirited in any way. Its main purpose and aim is to protect, to purify the church and to restore the sinner that may be backsliding or slipping, you know. Um, why do you guys think this action was so necessary to protect the church at Ephesus? Can you repeat the question? Yeah, so why was this action necessary to protect the church at Ephesus where Paul gave them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme was the scripture we read, verse 20. I think that uh, you are you are you asking how why was it important for that local church? Yeah, basically, why was it necessary to protect the church? Yeah, and I like, think why that, did he have to send them out to Satan? Kind of. Yeah, yeah I, I think that they were causing havoc, and so you know, um, um, uh, I think that when there's a toxic environment or toxic person who is not. Um, there for the reason, not there to edify the saints, right? You know, everybody has different different reasons why they gather, but then when a person becomes toxic in the sense of mi uh, misguiding or, or 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 causing schisms, divisions, and, and you know, you you, you got to do something about it. I'm not saying the first thing is to roll them out, um, but you know, obviously, I, I think that there there had to be a standard set, and if if there's not a standard set, it's like anything else. I mean. Uh, for example, if you're in a school and you're causing havoc in the classroom, the teacher, what does she do? She rolls you outside. You keep doing it. She sends you to the principal's office. You can do it. You get suspended. Right. Well, I don't know how that works now, but, you know, um, you, you go, you go to go to a court, try to speak out of line, see how quick you stay in that courtroom. The judge, the judge will shut you down real quick and roll you out. So we're, we're there's, there's, there, there's this, there is this um, disconnect with the church that people think that the church is, is exempt to that and we're not we, you know we have to do the same thing anywhere there has to be order um uh yeah so that's best i can think of yeah great points anybody else want to add to it I'll add a little bit then. Um, you know, these were men of faith at one point, right? Obviously. Uh, verse 19 says that they shipwrecked their faith. They left their faith. You know, so at some point, this is part of the body. Like you said, this is part of the church locally. You know, and now it says in verse 20, which is the verse we're using, it says that they're blaspheming the name of God. Like, I don't think we can allow that in the church. That's definitely going to cause you know, division, it's going to bring up a lot of concerns, it's going to bring up questions, misunderstandings, you know, um, like we don't really know, but, you know, what if there was other people in the church who know, knew these guys and respected them, you know, and now they're listening to them speak in these ways, it might be misleading to them also, you know, it just, it's going to cause a lot of division, it's going to cause a lot of problems, so... 
let's keep going then. Um, in these verses also, we see a little bit of the gospel. Now we're talking up to this point, up to verse 20 from one to 20. It's, we see truth and love, right? We see truth and love belonging together. Faithful ministers are to guard the gospel and confront false teaching that's gonna distract and damage the church. Right doctrine is essential, but it is a means to an end. The church must preserve the truth for the sake of grace-filled, you know, faith-driven, Christ-exalting love that we are supposed to show, not only to ourselves and to the brethren, but to the world so they can know Christ, right? First Timothy 1, 5 says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, right? This type of love that we see there, this is gonna be the type of love that fulfills the law, right? Romans 13, eight through 10 tells us, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And this love, again, it flows from the very being, from us being united to Jesus himself. This is how we learn to love. This is how we're going to be able to love, knowing that we are united. We are all one, you know, one spirit, one body under Christ, Christ Lord. Right. First Timothy 1.14 says that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So we see sound doctrine without love. It, it's going to miss that that essence of what true Christianity is all about. Right? We're supposed to be apart. We're supposed to have that type of love. This is what sets us apart. Um, John 13.35 tells us by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Right, Revelations 2, verses 2 to 4 says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how can you not bear with those who are evil? Excuse me. But I've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, All right? So love is not gonna flourish or endure in times of trial, you know, apart from the nourishment, the motivation and the sound doctrine that we get, you know, through the gospel. The gospel is our standard of truth. It's, it's the catalyst for our love, All right? Another glimpse that we see of the gospel in these verses one to 20 is mercy. We can see mercy of God very clearly, and it's extravagant mercy. Paul remembers that he was a blasphemer, right? He was a persecutor. He was insolent, you know, an insolent opponent. He was chief of sinners, he says. He was an ignorant, unbelieving rebel, just like the false teachers at Ephesus at the time. And then while Paul was traveling, you know, to persecute the church in Damascus, the Lord Jesus appeared to him and showed him, you know, showered him with this, with that mercy and the grace that, that Jesus brings. We can see it in Acts 9, 1 through 16. We get the full picture. So Acts 9, 
verses 1 to 16 says, but, Paul, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he may, so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with them stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Again, in 1 Timothy 1.15, says, um, Paul says that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So this is, you know, this is like, for me, one of the clearest summaries of the gospel, like anywhere in scripture, you know, Paul stresses that it is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance himself. You know, God's mercy can reach even the most zealous persecutor like Paul. And this is a, this is just a precious truth that we can hold on to, you know, it, it transformed Paul's identity, it transformed his ministry, and it it can do the same for each and every one of us, you know, if we follow it, if we follow the Lord and just obey, right? Um, another thing we see in verses 1 to 20, I'm going to try to connect it with the Bible because we see some connections made throughout the whole of scriptures. We see it talking about the law is good. The law is good. First Timothy 1.8 says, now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, right? Romans 7.12 says so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good romans 7 16 tells us now if i do what i do not want i agree with the law that it is good so god graciously revealed his law to israel you know um after he rescued them from from slavery in egypt we can see that in exodus 20 verse 2 where he says i am the lord you god who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You know, it goes into verses 3 to 17, uh, where it reveals, you know, the laws known as the Ten Commandments. Um, God then calls them, calls the Israelites to be his special people by reflecting his holiness. 
right? Exodus 19, five and six. It says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then in Leviticus, which is another book of law, um, chapter 11, verse 45 says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So we see this holy calling that he put upon the Israelites. Um, the law also established, you know, terms for God's covenant with Israel. Those who obey would be blessed while rebels would be cursed. You know, Leviticus 26 tells us, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord, your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths, Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statues and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. <clears throat> Excuse me. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid and I will remove harmful beasts from the land. The sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall, shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000. Your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful, multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall, shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. And then in the following verses, we're going to see the punishment for disobedience. So those were all the blessings that he promised them if they would obey his laws. So now 14 on. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statues and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursue you. If in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength shall be sent in vain, spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. 
I will let loose the wild beast against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant, and if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you. You shall be delivered into the hand of your enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight. You shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but continue to walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. My soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled of it. I will scatter you among the nations and will unsheath my sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation. Your cities shall be a waste. The land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbath when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight and they shall flee as one flees from the sword. They shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another <clears throat> as if to escape a sword though none pursue. You shall have no power to stand before your enemies and you shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. Those of you who are left shall rot away, excuse me, in your enemy's land because of their iniquity. And also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery and they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurn my rules of their soul, abhorred my statues, Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, for I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. So now looking at Jesus, right? Jesus Christ fulfilled that law. All that stuff we just talked about. So Matthew 5, 17 tells us, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, right? Romans 10, 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He perfectly embodied the grace and truth to which the law pointed. 
right? John 1, 17 says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Jesus also bore the curse of the law that we deserved, right? Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. First Timothy 1, 8 through 9, clarifies that the law must be used lawfully, right? According to its intent. It states this, it says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers. So the purpose of, of restraining sin that is the purpose of the law for restraining sin it is not for the just right those who do what is right that's the just right but it's for the lawless it's for the disobedience and it's to keep them from further wickedness this was the intent of it christians we are not under the law like in that sense anymore right galatians 5 18 says if you are led by the spirit you are not under the law so the gospel, not the law, is going to be the foundation for Christian doctrine and for our practices and the way that we live. Now, it doesn't mean like the law isn't still good. It is, but it's just different for the actual Christian, right? First Timothy 1.11 says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So we're to live under grace now. And if we obey what Jesus said, love God, love neighbor, we will fulfill the law, right? So that's why the law is not, it's not the same for us no more, because we shouldn't continue sinning. The law is to bring people to the knowledge of sin, what's right, what's wrong, to kind of put boundaries so they don't go too crazy, which nowadays we can see people just going in many different ways. They don't even, you know, it. The Ten Commandments don't even really exist. They got their own like lifestyle and it's kind of sad, you know, but that's what happens when we push God out of everything and we start believing in other things. And that's just the world we live in. It's, it's fallen. And we as Christians should, it should like break our hearts. Like we should be out there, you know, preaching the gospel and telling people truth and bringing them back so we can get the nation on the right track that it needs to be on. Let's keep going. I don't want to rabbit trail down a whole nother, another place that we shouldn't be going down right now. Theological things that we see, some soundings that we see in verses 1 through 20 of 1 Timothy. We see glory. See, uh, human beings are made to delight in glory and transcendent greatness. This is what we were created for, right? We can see it when we celebrate like gold medalists or we give a standing ovation and we go crazy at like football games or a brilliant performance that we might watch. These are just natural responses that we have to human glory. These are what points to our ultimate design because God made us to see and savor his magnificent glory forever, right? The glory of God is the final statement of the beauty and perfection of God himself. First Timothy 1.11 says, Paul referring to this, he says, um, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, that is the gospel displays God's impeccable character and matchless worth. That's what we see Paul talking about here. 
Um, in 1 Timothy 1, 16 to 17, Paul reflects on his own personal experience of God's saving mercy in Christ, you know, and he responds in worship, you know, God's glory will one day illuminate the whole of creation. So uh, Revelations 21, 23 says, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb, the lamb. So Jesus is our light, light to our feet, right? We see that throughout scripture as well. He has redeemed his people and his redeemed people will experience this. You know, we will delight in seeing and celebrating his glory forever one day. You know, just think about that. I mean, that's gonna be awesome, guys, love it. Another thing that we see, we see a good conscience, right? A good conscience. So conscious, conscience is a person's sense of what he or she believes to be right or wrong. This is our conscience. This is what it kind of does. Paul charges Timothy to be motivated by a good conscience in 1 Timothy 1.5. And he must also maintain faith and a good conscience in his ministry. We see that in verse 19, 1 Timothy 1, 19. We can compare these also to like 1 Timothy 3, 9, which we haven't gotten to yet, but it says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, right? A good conscience is gonna accurately reflect God's revealed standards, you know, for right and for wrong. And it's gonna guide, you know, our judgments, our actions. So when our hearts are pure, and we think and behave consistently with a good conscience, you know, we're gonna produce the fruit of love. We really will. Someone with a seared conscience is someone who has lost like all bearings for what's right or wrong, right? He doesn't know what's true or false anymore. They have their own concept. Their conscience is just seared. First Timothy 4.2 says, let no one despise you of your youth but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. You know, the person with the seer conscience, he's not going to feel remorse. He's not going to feel guilt for sinning against God or for promoting any type of false teaching. The conscience is a gift from God that we should consistently heed and we should consistently keep it tuned in to God's standards for truth. Our consciences should be always focused on truth according to God's will and God's word. <clears throat> so we're going to continue in now. We still got some time. So yeah, let's keep going. We're going to look at uh, 1 Timothy 2. We're going to start a new chapter 2, and we're going to try to go into chapter 3, verse 16. Um, and this is going to be where we talk about like the gospel-shaped living, the leadership inside of God's household. So 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3 give you a quick glimpse. These stress how the gospel message should impact Christian living and leadership. The gospel of grace marked Paul's life and it has marked his life in a way that he's never going to forget it. And it should do the same for us. First Timothy 1, 12 to 17, if you guys remember, it said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to, to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, 
I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 15, Paul's going to explain how, how the gospel should shape, you know, every believer's prayer life, our priorities, and our different relationships. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 15, I'm going to read it real quick, and it says this. It says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for a woman who professes godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And then he goes on to present a vision for the church leadership, which is comprised of you know, godly overseers and deacons in the next verses. So 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, 
managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So some of the key verses of, uh, that we're going to be looking at is going to be 14 and 16, right there in three. You know, Paul writes Timothy this letter so that he says, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, right? The church proclaims and protects the truth. The mystery of godliness is what Paul talks about. And this mystery is God's hidden plan that has been made known through Jesus, through his incarnation, death, resurrection, and also his exaltation. The church believes and proclaims the gospel truth and shows, we must show its transformational power through godly living. You can't just preach it, we have to live it. Because a lot of people just watch our lives more than our words sometimes. So the big picture again, Paul explains how the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms the lives of men and women, overseers and deacons in God, God's household and in his church as well. So let's dig in and start asking some questions. So 1 Timothy 2, it presents a positive vision, right, for how men and women should behave in the household of God. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So first, Paul urges believers to pray when we read in 1 Timothy 2.1. And he stresses four points for what we could consider to be like a comprehensive life of prayer. He, he says supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. These are the four things that he kind of stresses. So a question for you guys is, what specifically do you think that believers should be praying for? You, you mean, a, you mean a, based on what we just read or just in general? Uh, you can do both. Mainly what we just read, but I mean, if you want to tell me what you think we should be praying for in general, that's fine too. I mean, yeah, well, I think that um, for the church, um, you know, for the church and um, to make sure that the, the structure of the church or the, the, the mold of the church be one according to scripture. So, you know, that's, you know, um, I think that's just really important that we pray for that, that not just in the beginning, not just, you know, forever, right? That when I'm talking about congregations, I'm sorry, not just the church is everybody, but that congregations be structured upon the gospel of Christ um, and not, um, not just simply, uh, and not just simply um, a person's opinions or, or high horse that he wants to ride, um, but, but actually that's the pillar and support of the truth that the church is there to proclaim the truth of Christ. And what happens is I think that we need to pray for that because the church, um, the congregations at times uh, uh, get on high horses and start proclaiming other things and not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we get in trouble for that. We, we, we get, um, it creates divisions. It creates a lot of things. Our job, it's kind of like, if you go to, you know, just a simple analogy, if you go to McDonald's, you don't expect to get a pizza, right? You're there because you're gonna get 
uh, you know, microwaved hamburger. You know, you're not, you know, if you go to, if you go to um, a Vietnamese restaurant, you don't expect to get an enchilada, right? Because that's not what they serve. Their job is to serve what they, what, you know, they're, they're, there's a reason why they exist. Well, the church exists to proclaim the truth. We are a pillar in support of the truth. The minute that we leave that, we're no longer the church. We're just a YMCA with the church name on it or whatever it is. And so we got to be really careful that the church just does what it's called to do. It may sound too simple, but that's why we exist. You know, we're here to, to, to glorify the name of Christ, to evangelize the world, to equip the saints, um, you, know, you know, to sum it up in a, in a short way. Um, everything else is adornment, right? It just, it's just, um, it's kind of like, uh, like Christmas trees, right? Now that we're coming in, well, it's not Christmas yet, but you know, whatever, we're close. You know, everybody, every, you know, everybody um, uh, puts different type of ornaments, but it's the same tree. It's just, it's a tree that everybody decorates in their own way. Well, the decoration is, is, is not, uh, the decorations that we can put in the churches is not what's important. It's important that we got a tree, you know, and that, and that, and that tree is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we should pray for that because the minute, and I'm not just talking about our congregation, just this fellowship, us, but every fellowship, because when they do, when they, when they look bad, bad, because we're one body, we got to remember that uh, when the church across the, the country does something or a pastor down the street, whatever it's, we're connected. That's the, that's, that's the problem with, it's not just them, it's us. Um, and we look bad. So, and that's our brothers. So, um, yeah, we should pray for that. Yeah, definitely. Good points. It went into the second question of how should it shape and motivate to our prayers. Um, I think I've seen William put forgiveness, God's forgiveness, definitely. I think we should definitely be praying for, you know, everyone to be saved that don't know Christ to come to know Christ. Like what you were talking about, the gospel should always be central. So we should definitely be praying for that as well. Anybody else want to add anything else? Um, maybe to be, we're supposed to be praying like to be more Christ-like. Yeah, definitely. The Spirit's gonna conform us into His image. We should definitely be praying to God to help us to allow the spirit to do that because sometimes we put blocks on the spirit I think I know I do I've done it before I've been guilty of that so so yeah that's good anybody else want to add anything else because we should be praying for a lot so looking at the word uh supplications I urge that supplications right supplications is kind of like almost begging God. So like we should come before him with fervent prayer. And remember, we've been talking a lot about love. So if, if our prayers aren't based on our love for others, you know, it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be right. You know, I'm not, if I don't really care about you and I just pray for you, like why would I even expect God to listen to me? Like he knows our hearts, he knows where I'm at. He's, it's gonna be like empty words to him. It's going to be like a noisy gong, you know? So I think we should definitely, yeah, be praying for people with that love and that supplication, begging God to just, 
like maybe right now, revival, you know, bring another great awakening. This nation is getting darker and darker. We should be praying for our brothers to stand firm on the faith, you know, and not to be misled by so many just weird thoughts. And everyone's trying to conform the gospel to the world instead of, you know, bringing the gospel to the world and letting the world get conformed by the gospel itself, you know, and transformed by the gospel. We're trying to transform the gospel to match the world and to make it more palatable for people. So we should be praying that that leaders come back to truth. We should be praying for the church that's, you know, being persecuted to stand in strength. You know, I think we should be praying for, he talks about for kings and all who are in high positions in verse two, you know, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. You know, our nation, we need to pray for our leaders. Whether we agree with the president we got or not, we should be praying for that man. You know, that his heart is changed by the gospel, just like it was for us. And now he will return this nation to one nation under God, how it should be. You know, things like that. Um, and yeah, let me, let, yeah, let me make a note of that right now. You're talking about, because it says here to pray on behalf of all men and for kings, right? And so it's talking about the people in authority that are not in the church. So regardless of what your opinions are, we ought to pray for everybody everybody um uh that whoever's over us um um that god will not only not only just to lead well but that god will save their souls first of all <laughs> and that and that they, god that they'll be led by god's wisdom but yet we have to understand this that when you look at the biblical context it adds a lot more potent to 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 the truth when 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 the when the christians were praying when nero was the emperor you have to understand, we have not experienced a Nero. Some may think we have, we have not, believe me. When they're praying for Nero, when they're praying for Domitian, whichever way you want to date things, these were not good rulers by no stretch of the imagination. You know, when when uh, you look at, um, when you look at um, uh, Dietrich, Dietrich von, Bonhoeffer, right? During Hitler's um, uh, tyranny, right? You know, you, you see how the church was praying, um, and and for us, we, you know, we have we 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 have a, a, a commotion, you know, in the ocean here of, of our little world, our bubble of, and and we get all stressed out, weary, and we think it's the end of the world. It's like the Christians have had it way worse, um, and Christians actually have it way worse right now in other places of the world, um, and we we just get because the thing is we're so comfortable, we we like our we like our. Um, our way and and be, regardless we need to pray for those who are above us like he says pray for the kings for those in authority he's not talking about the church he's talking about those outside governing us in our regular lives so um when we pray like anthony was saying why would i think he said something like this if you don't care for the person why would god even listen to you or something like that um and and that's the problem i think that christians don't actually care for those in leadership you know, and so a, a lot of times, I'm not saying everybody. And so we, when our prayers are hindered by that, because we're not being genuine with God, God knows our hearts. God knows that we inside we're cursing um, uh, and not blessing. And our lips are blessing, but our hearts are cursing. And so we need to be really careful with that, that, that we don't get distracted. And like you said, trying to conform the gospel uh, into um, um, whatever, whatever, whatever's whatever's trending now 
Um, it's always been the case, right? Everybody's um, whatever, you know, that's a whole nother train, but you know, um, yeah, we need to, we need to pray for those who are above us, whoever it is. And, um, and we need to, we need to always have you know, honor is due respect where is due and, and, um, yeah, and know that Jesus is Lord and Christ is King, and He's called us. This is a commandment. It's not even a, if you want to. We gotta pray, not just for each other, but we gotta pray for everybody. We have to have a, the heart of Jesus, um, uh, as hard as it may be, because we are not Jesus. We're called, like Broly was saying, to be more Christ-like. That's what the church. This is what this what we're doing right now ought to be making you be more Christ-like. The more we learn of God, the more we're convicted, the more we're encouraged. Whatever it is. So, Amen. Amen to, to all that. <laughs> yeah, amen. Definitely. I mean, let, let, let's keep going because look, look at verses three to six, right? The very next verses talking about the, after telling us to pray, it says in verse three, this is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, so, I mean, it's pleasing to God that we pray, you know, <laughs> like this should be like our main motivation to pray, you know, is that it is pleasing to God. If God desires it, then so should we, you know, we are to follow God, right? We should be praying for boldness, you know, and for truth, you know, so that we can you know, speak to the nations and relay that same message, you know, knowing that God can and does change situations through the prayer of the righteous. So um, another thing, let's keep going. Uh, we see references to all and to all people, you know, pray for all, pray for all people. And first Timothy two, one through six. Um, let's see. Uh, Paul was a teacher to the Gentiles, right? First Timothy 2.7, for this, is, this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. First uh, Timothy 1.4 and verse 7 says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Uh, desiring, verse 7 says, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So here we're seeing, um, you know, the beliefs and the practices of these false teachers at Ephesus who started emphasizing like the Jewish laws, the myths, the genealogies, um, things like that, right? How does Paul's focus on all that he says, pray for all and all people, how does that stir your heart for prayer and for gospel witness across different cultures and maybe social boundaries? I think, I think it makes our prayers missional. Um, missional prayers and um, I think a, a while back when um, we were talking about missions and the persecuted church I remember with with this with the Spanish congregation uh, we had a vigil and um, I think Brawley handed out like little booklets that she got that have to do it like 
different parts of the world. And, and just to remind you of like, you know, um, uh, to be missional with your prayers. And that's, that's something we miss. We, we have missional days, missional weeks, missional events, but our, our life is not really missional at times. Um, those who are, are rare and few, right? They're just geared that way. They're just like hundred uh, percent, you know, every day, like, you know, they got countries, they got people, they got, they got, um, um, you know, they, they got it in their mind for the most of us, you know, average Joes, we just don't average Joes and Janes to be correct. Right. We just, we don't, we don't have it. Uh, you know, we have to be reminded. And I think that that's just a good thing that Paul reminds us of all people um, that, you know, Christ came to save all people. We need to pray for all people. We need to, the gospel should get to all people that, that should be, um, that should be in our minds. Uh, the all people, the gospel, the, the um, and so forth, that Christ be known. Yeah. Hey man, brother. Well said, you know, that free gift of grace through faith in Christ, you know, it's for all people, like you said, man, from the least to the greatest. So God doesn't make a distinction and either should we, you know, we're all one in Christ. So yeah. Missional mindset of prayer. Awesome. All right. <clears throat> Let's keep going. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, Paul's going to stress that God's people should pursue unity, that we should pursue order and good works when we gather for worship. Let's read it real quick again, and I will ask some questions. Uh, verse 8 says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for a woman who professes godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yes, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So the question is, what kind of practices and attitudes should Christians pursue or avoid? Either or. I don't have an answer to your question, but I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Can you explain verse 15, please? Verse 15, I cannot. Yes, she will be saved through childbearing. That is good question. I, I really don't have an answer. I didn't never dug into that one deep enough. You know, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, um, I know that was part of the curse from Genesis, you know, that the woman would have to bear children, uh, the pain of it all. So I, I really don't know. I don't know. I'd have to dig into that. If anybody else has that answer, please help us understand. That That is one of the most difficult passages 
that there is in the Bible. And I have not heard one good response. Um, I heard ex I heard people trying to make excuse the text, um, and I don't want to do that this evening. But um, I heard a um, uh, I heard when they asked um, a couple of theologians this question, they were on a panel, and uh, um, just the answers were not good. Um, in regards, I mean, obviously, you know, not only women who bear children go to heaven. Obviously, we know that through the whole scripture, not through one text. So it's, it's really complicated um, in regards to looking at it. Of course, there's different commentaries on it. Um, I, just, I haven't been convinced by any, to be honest with you, um, in regards to trying to explain it. So I'm not even, yeah, that, that, that is one of the most uh, difficult passages in scripture, in my opinion, um, because it's just, it's, there's a lot of mystery to it. Um, and not, not because we're trying to excuse it, it's just, we just, you know, we just don't know. Um, what, what exactly, um, he's, what, what exactly he's trying to say by that. It's just like, he props that in there. Um, so yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, you can see that he's saying, I do not permit a woman to teach. So it might just be his thinking, but he knows. So I don't know, like he said, excusing kind of deal. Oh, wait, no, wait, you know, you were, wait, Bradley, what, what, what verse were you asking? You were asking about 15. 15? Yeah, fifteen. Yeah, oh, I'm not. I'm not numbers. asking about the permitting to teach. I'm asking about yeah, women being saved through childbearing. Yeah, yeah. Also, like, why was it easier for Eve to be deceived and not Adam? Mm, good question. Because she's a woman. No. I'm just <laughs> 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 no, no, no. But the serpent, the serpent, you know, he went at, you know, he, um, we don't know. We just don't know. Um, but the Bible warns a whole lot after that happened, you know, there's a lot of warnings, you know, about women and so forth. They look at Proverbs, they look at, I mean, that's, every, you know, but we don't know. Good question, though. Maybe because the men were just more built like that. Uh you know, just warrior, gather food. That's all they really cared about. And the woman well, was more thoughtful about things. And because she's the helper, she's the one caring and thinking. So she has a different type of emotion where she can be, you know, maybe misled a little bit through that a little easier than a guy is just like fight, fight, eat, food. Yeah, sleep. Okay. You know, we're just kind of dumb in that way. And women think a lot more than we do so the serpent was like i need to get in the head i don't know you know i don't know what, that's, that's what, kind what, of my thoughts i don't know what one thing we do know is that throughout throughout i mean just women have been more curious um uh than men men are not typically men all right and i'm not saying every man and you know i'm not trying to um but i'm just saying you know typically women are a little bit more curious ask a little bit more questions are able to ask, you know, talk a little bit more. And I'm sure she, you know, um, so I don't know. I don't know if that's it, but yeah. That's a great question. All right, back to the other question. What kind of practices and attitudes should Christians pursue or avoid?
avoid the things that the Lord calls evil and do the things that he calls good. Yeah, definitely. Can you clarify, maybe give us like a couple examples? Me or like other people? Yeah, you, you. Um, or as somebody else, if they want to jump in too. So I'll give you guys some there. Uh, prayer, unity, good works. Some, some of the things that we should pursue, right, as a Christian. Uh, we should continue in faith. We should pursue love. We should pursue holiness. We should pursue, you know, self-control. Um, from reading this scripture that we just went through too, I would say humbleness, modesty, avoid anger, avoid you know, quarrels, avoid division within the body of Christ, things like that. Avoid anything that might grieve. Yeah, I, I think what, like what Philippians, someone send up, whatever's pure, lovely, of good repute, beautiful, honorable, the, the things that will lead us closer to God and God's virtues. And um, um, of course, there's going to be some things that are, you know, are on the, you know, they're hard to decide maybe, but whatever's, whatever, whatever God um, whatever honors the Lord, or whatever you can honor the Lord with. Um, and I know that doesn't answer other questions, but um, as long as we're not living against scripture, uh, um, you know, we, sh we should be pretty good. Yeah. yeah that's good. Because that one does sum it up quite a bit. You know, it tells us what to strive after. <clears throat> so, yeah. Good job, you guys. Um, what was that? All right, 1 Timothy 2.8 says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Um, if we look at 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, I'm going to read it real quick. The question is going to be, how does this relate to the qualifications for overseers as well? So it says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, not gentle, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So um, how does that relate? Or how, what, what do you guys see as far as like qualifications for overseers? You know, it's actually, actually pretty interesting about when it talks about that. Actually, the qualifications, with with the exception of able to teach, is 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 for everybody else. If you, if I mean, uh, it's pretty it's pretty funny how in, that's just being a Christian. Um, but 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 we it just if you look at all scripture, um, with without the exception of able to teach, not everybody should be able to teach necessarily, but everybody should be above reproach. Everybody should be married to one person, not two, three, four, right? Um, everybody should be temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, not addicted to wine. So all these things, 
are actually, it's interesting how, how he, um, yes, this should be above reproach, but in reality, these are standards for everybody. Um, it's not just, um, you know, because sometimes we put, because he's a leader, um, this person cannot do this. Technically, none of you, none of us, you know, can. I mean, uh, you know, it's just being a Christian. But the, the only difference is that that person has been given the gift to teach. Um, that's it. Um, and so, you know, it's, 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 um, it's just an interesting thing. And I just, and now, you know, I was, I was looking at that a few months back and I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting how it's just being a Christian. Um, of course, um, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I would agree. It should be. I mean, I guess if you're going to be like a leader in the church, those need to be like a little bit more fine tuned, maybe. That's yeah, I why think it says to... don't let them be a, be a beginner or like a, a fresh convert because he's yeah, still you, not. Yeah, you need to you need to have a track history. You need to be an example of those things. Yeah, I forgot to say that. Yeah, you need to be an example of the of the Christian virtues. In order to lead others, how can you lead others if you're not doing it yourself? Type of deal. Because a new convert, it's not that they don't have it; it's that they haven't they haven't been discipled in that area. Um, so it's very hard for them to have something that they, you know, they just came into. Yeah, definitely. All right, we'll go a little bit more, and then we'll stop. Let's see. Looking at First Timothy. Oh wait, we're past that. First Timothy two. Uh, verses 9 to 12. The question is, what actions should Christian women pursue or avoid? So now we're talking about the women. What actions should Christian women pursue or avoid? First Timothy 2, 9 to 12 says, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So what do you guys think in these verses? What kind of actions should a Christian woman pursue or avoid? Just don't be worldly. Don't be a gossiper. <laughs> You'll be into God. Um, you know. Yeah, you know, and and of course, obviously, men don't really care about the outer appearance as much, you know, the adornment, and women tend to care about it a little bit more, and so that can carry them away a little bit into um, a sense of, uh, you know, you should not be so concerned about your outer appearance as much as your soul, basically, and so men obviously also, but we just don't have that problem necessarily. Um, not um, some men might, of course, but not typically. Yeah, if anything, we get more distracted by what the woman's wearing sometimes, you know. So, yeah. Anybody else? So, I see also, you know, modesty, self control, good works in these passages, uh, learning, you know, learning are, are some of the things that women should pursue. 
uh, some of the things maybe to avoid, you know, like what we were talking about, certain attire that might distract or make others fall, you know, into a temptation or something like that, or anything that may distract, you know, the men from focusing also. All right, let's keep going. Uh, let me ask another question before we go on. Why do you guys think this matters, these actions that they should pursue that he's talking about here? You know, the good works, the modesty, the self-control, uh, not to be adorned, stuff like that, to be paying attention and focusing on learning. Why do you guys think that matters? Um, probably like to help pursue like the purity of the heart so that the church can be pure. But also like in regards to modesty, wouldn't like that would be that wouldn't that be different for different people? And so because every culture is different, also it's not all America. Like what, what's considered modest here is different than in Africa or in other places. Um, and women can still, like, they pursue modesty in a different way. So to say that, so then isn't the man also responsible for the way that he looks at women as well? Yeah, we both and have it can't a responsibility. All be, it can't all be blamed on a woman's attire in regards to a man falling. No, but if you come to church, you know, with a lot more showing than you should, I mean, obviously somebody there is going to look, you know, like, did you really have to come that way? There wasn't, you couldn't have put on like a little bit longer shirt, a little bit longer, instead of booty shorts, you know, with everything hanging out, maybe like a dress, because I mean, there's limits, obviously, but the man, yes, you are correct. We have, we should make a covenant with our own eyes as well, like Job says, right? If we see a woman walk in like that, we should turn our, our head, get, you know, sit in front of her so we're not tempted to look at her. If we know that we're going to be looking at her in the wrong way, you know, we should definitely, definitely do everything to avoid that because we don't know if she's someone who's not even a believer coming in like that. So we can't just go over there and act crazy either, you know. But I, I think both sides, because sometimes the men too, you know, we come in there when we're all muscled up, trying to flex and look all sexy and mm -hmm. stuff. And like, we're all here to focus on Christ, bro, and on, on the Lord. But yeah, you know, when, when it comes to when it comes to modesty, I just take that as a whole topic. And I, and and brothers write about cultures and all that. Every everybody everybody when it comes to these topics, everybody gets sensitive. You know, and um, and it's like eschatology, traditions, emotions, and ignorance. And we, 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 we become really defensive when it comes to my, not just, I'm talking women, everybody, uh, because everybody wants to have the right to do whatever they want. Uh, but, and it's really hard. It is because if you go to the certain parts of the world, it's just, it's just, you can't even wear, even if you try to, you're going to go in the street like that. Not even because of Jesus, because they're going to, they're going to just, you know, you ain't going to do it because you, um, you don't got rights there. In America, because it's because we're very we're very western we're very uh, westernized, and in California, it's not the same. If you go to the Midwest, um, it's not the same. Of course, you know everybody's dresses every, everywhere different, but it's just it's a really complicated thing. It really is, 
um, uh, especially student, you know, men, men trying to tell women what to wear, women trying to tell men what to wear. Like it just becomes, it becomes a free for all ridiculous conversation that ends up doing nothing. But we, do, we need to have the wisdom of God and we need to have discernment, um, and not just in church. See, this, that's the problem. Like a lot of times we're like, well, I'm not going to wear that in church, but I'm going to wear that outside. Yeah, well, I mean, you got to be really careful. Um, um, yeah, because God's know, we, watching we, us everywhere we go. Just because, yeah, we, you know, we, yeah. we got to be really careful. Yeah, of course, you know, of course we want to be modest in the church. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we uh, we just got to be careful. Um, and we just have discernment on this and, and not... Um, because everybody's going to answer to God for themselves. Um, and, you know, uh, so, yeah, you know, if somebody can consider wearing shorts inappropriate, somebody can consider wearing pants inappropriate, somebody can consider wearing dress inappropriate. I mean, it's just, it's a never ending inappropriate cycle of hamster, you know, just like on a hamster wheel. And then you become, you know, so it's just never ending. So I just, I, I recommend that you have the wisdom of God and that you be humble if you receive correction. Um, you know, for example, somebody come, you know, I've had it many times, so I can tell you this firsthand, you know, pe you know, you know, Hispanics don't like when I wear shorts, you know, um, you know, it, or whatever, or they don't like whatever uh, certain things. And, and before it was really hard. Now I just take it and I pray about it. And then, um, you know, and that's it, you know, and I have, if they, if they're mature enough, I have a conversation to find out why, you know, what, what, it, what is it about certain things? And usually it's, they're very immature. And as I realized myself that the people who are the most critical are the most immature when it comes to conversations. Because if you have something, for example, if somebody's wearing something inappropriate, you should have the maturity to have a conversation about it and not get mad. And that's the problem. I think a lot of people get mad and get defensive instead of exercising Christian maturity and saying, okay, let's have a conversation, not an argument. You know, we can have a conversation, even if you disagree at the end, just have a conversation because you don't know where they're coming from. Um, you don't know why they're saying the things you're saying. So it's just good to, to be humble at this and be praying, um, you know, uh, for those of you that never leave your Christian bubble here and you go to another Christian church, you, you'll be very surprised. Um, you go to another church and, and they just have different norms, um, different customs, and they're, they're not wrong for that. We can't say that everybody's wrong because they don't agree with us. Um, so we just got, it's really hard. Just be humble about it, praying about it.